that's why you're here. Your diversity is your point of difference, uh, your point of uniqueness and something to be celebrated. Remember that what you bring is your overseas perspective. How you've been educated is so different. How you approach problems, how you think about authority. Those things are a gift to the system that you're coming to. So don't lose that because that's what makes you unique in the, in the market as well. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation that I had with Jennifer Shinkai. Jennifer is a British-born, Oxford-educated, Tokyo-based Ikigai and inclusion facilitator and coach. She is also the host of the Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai podcast, the founder of the free online community for business owners, Make March Matter, and the author and illustrator of the book, Ken Giraffe Swim. We'll learn much more about her experiences in Japan, as well as her insights into creating more Ikigai for yourself, no matter where you find yourself in the world. So be sure to stick around to hear more. My name is Jennifer Shinkai, and I'm an inclusion and Ikigai coach based in Japan, in Tokyo. And um, I'm originally from the UK, but as you can uh, guess from the name, I have a Japanese husband and I'm here for the long run, which was definitely not the plan. <laughs> Yes, a lot of those sorts of things don't quite go according to plan. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up in Japan in the first place? Yes, so it was 1999. And uh, yeah, <laughs> in the last millennium makes me feel really old. So I was finishing up my degree in English literature and uh, wasn't sure really what I wanted to do way back in uh, 1999. I had a feeling like I wanted to go overseas for a year and I originally wanted to go to Italy because I loved Italy so much I thought I can go to Italy on a holiday anytime like it's really easy to get to and I read in a newspaper that shows how long ago it was an advert for Eikaiwa no Gios so like uh, many people I came originally as an English school teacher and uh, thought I'd just come for a year you know finish the contract come back start my real life get a graduate job somewhere and uh, yeah, that didn't quite happen. And uh, here I am. And I've now at the point where I spent more than half my life in Japan. That was quite a big oh, moment, you know, uh, milestone last year for me. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Why did you choose Japan or did it just kind of happen to be the country that you saw the advert for? So that's what you went for. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I mean, that's not the answer that I gave in my job interview, um, but it was really somewhere which seemed far enough away that I probably wouldn't go normally traveling, you know, because I was from the UK. So it was, you know, ex exotic enough and far away enough that it wasn't really accessible easily. And, you know, the, the, the deal at the time was we'll pay for your flights, we'll pay for your training. 
So I thought, why not? And my parents were very much like, it's just a flight away. So if you don't like it, you know, you can you can come back. It's fine. Yeah. You know, I used to watch sumo with my dad when I was a kid, but I wasn't one of those people who was who had studied Japanese, who had like long connections to the country. And I think probably in 99, there wasn't so much access to things like anime and manga. Um, it wasn't even on my radar. So what made you decide to stay in Japan then, more specifically? That's love. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, actually, that, that's true. And it's also not quite true because the first year, after about three months, I thought, mm, I'm not sure this is going to be long enough. Um, you know, when I realized the realities of like working and uh, all the hours and the, the like lack of holidays, I thought, I don't think one year I will have seen much of Japan. So I knew that I would extend my contract. And then after I'd made that decision in my head, I met my husband after that point. And um, there, there was a point though at about year three to four, it must have been. I was like, I don't, you know, I was working at the head office of the English language school at that point, And I didn't see like where my career was going. Maybe it's time to go back to England. And uh, my husband cunningly proposed in an onsen and uh, <laughs> kept, kept me here. And uh, that's when I became Shinkai in 2003, four, yeah, 2003. You have a long history living and working in Japan and then also more specifically working with people who are working in Japan and what is it that you tend to teach to expats who want to be more effective in Japan? Yeah I think I work with a lot of international teams so whether that's expats who are you know coming to Japan or people uh, who are working with international teams sort of like now much more online as well as Japanese people who are working with non-Japanese international team members. And where this came from for me was I remember my the, the company which I spent most of my career in, when we were purchased by a large Japanese company, that's when I really was like, wow, wow, <laughs> many, many things are going on. And then we started to, thanks to, because they're a publicly traded company, we started to purchase other recruitment businesses around the Asia Pacific region. And again, I was like, wow, wow, there's lots of things about cross-cultural communication, misunderstandings. And that's where I felt like a lot of the roots of communication and uh, problems and frustrations were coming up. So from that, when I first started my training business, I really focused on a lot of the models around the differences around cross-culture. And I think many of your listeners are already aware of them. So of course, you know, there's Hofstede. We can see the work from the culture map. But increasingly, I'm interested in all different types of difference. And culture is just one of the elements. So we think about, you know, the intersectionality of the person in front of us. Um, and everything that they're bringing to the conversation and culture is going to be one thing which is impacting but so is their sexuality so is the school that they went to so is even you know what they had for breakfast this morning is going to be impacting how they show up in front of you on that day so really looking at like the whole human and maybe the challenge perhaps with communication is coming from culture it has a cultural element but it's probably not just that so that's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> that was a great <laughs> answer because it can be so easy for individuals to 
expect that they can learn those cultural sets almost memorize these sets and then you'll know how people are going to interact with you once you get to the country and that is just not the case because no matter how homogenous a country is everybody is still an individual yeah like and everyone's on a scale within within that too everyone's on the spectrum as well as yourself so you might not be like the typical British person and the person in front of you might not be the typical Japanese person so the models can be they can be helpful and I don't want to you know throw them out because there's enough in them which is useful but also if you you approach it with that's only from a cross-cultural lens you're probably missing out on a lot of nuance as well so know it, yes, read up on it, discover it before, and then be really interested and curious about when you arrive in Japan. Oh, oh, maybe that's this in action. Maybe that's this risk avoidance that I read about. Okay, how's that showing up? Right. And then the next piece is, well, how am I going to adapt to that? Because you still have a job to do. So how are you going to adapt and how are you going to reach the goals that you need to uh, need to achieve through the people that you're working with? Then what sorts of tools do you help to provide people to be more effective or help teams to be more effective when interacting with other teams? Because it sounds like there's just so many variables involved that it might get completely overwhelming <laughs> for people <laughs> trying to cope in these situations. So what do you do to help people along with this? I think that a couple of mindset things which are quite important, one of them, which I became got really well phrased for me last year when I started to study ORS, which is Organizational Relationship Systems Coaching, quite a mouthful, but is that everybody is right, at least partially. So if you come into every conversation knowing that you are right and the other person is right, to some degree, then the challenge and the interesting things to become is like, what, what is it like to sit in that space, to come from that perspective, to, to believe that this is the way that we should do it? You don't need to agree with it. You don't need to accept it, but you at least have to have curiosity around it, as well as knowing that you are also partially right, but there are bits of you which are also partially wrong, so that not any single one of us has um, has all the answers. And I was uh, really think that that's very useful approach when you're coming up with some of those kind of value driven conflicts. Like, what should we focus on? Should we focus on the process, or should we would should we focus on the outcome? And actually, maybe what what's it look like if we focus on both, <laughs> right? Or what's at stake when we don't focus on process? And or what's at stake when we only focus on. So it's just kind of opening up and kind of creating this hybrid within your team as well. So I think I think that's one thing that uh, to think about, as well as as we talked about briefly before we um, we started recording. I was reminded recently of the book Global Dexterity, which I really love. There's a model in it where it talks about the difference between an authenticity challenge and a competency challenge. So. Is the difficult thing for you, is it because you don't know how to do it? Or is it because doing this task, you know, is uncomfortable for you because it's not authentic? Uh, so I often give the example that serving tea in a meeting, absolute competency, no problem for me to do that. But serving tea because I'm the youngest woman in the room, 
big authenticity challenge for me there. So then in that moment, I have a choice about how adaptable do I want to be and how long do I want to be adaptable for? Um, so, yeah, it might not be, you know, Nemawashi and building consensus might not be your natural way to go about these things. So you might need to work on the competency. You might need to work on well, maybe authenticity is not so much the issue for many people on that one. Um, but the competency is probably the biggest challenge. So how can you practice it? How can you get comfortable with it? And when are the times when you need to do it? And when are the times when you're like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do Nemawashi and I'm going to make this choice and I'm going to deal with the consequences of making this choice as well. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. But it can be tempting to just want to have these hard and fast rules about these are the types of things I'm okay with doing. These are the types of things I'm not okay with doing. So what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to figure out what level of adapting they're willing to do versus doing what they can to be true to themselves? Because you don't want to go too mm. far in either direction. Because like you said, there are repercussions if you don't adapt. But at the same time, you can only pretend to be someone you're not for so long. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that that's it, isn't it? There, there's consequences to whatever choices that you make so it's an awareness of that you are making a choice and that you are choosing those consequences rather than feeling so like oh I have to adapt this way I have to do this otherwise I can't survive I sort of encourage people to think about how can you align yourself with this adaptation that you're making in a way which does feel authentic to you because for example I need to adapt in this certain way in order to get these people to you know do, do the work that they're required because I'm thinking of the bigger goal for example or I understand what the cultural difference is and so I'm aware of the intention behind it I'm aware of why it makes sense in this context to do it this way. If I'm not working in this cultural context, it's not my, uh, my default, but I understand the logic behind it. And so I'm going to do it for this period of time. So I, I feel the, the key word is, is intention around it and being aware of the adaptation choices that you are making and why you're making them. And in that way, you don't kind of lose yourself. Because I definitely felt there was one point I was like, oh, wow, hang on. <laughs> I am losing myself a little bit here. I, I think like if, if I'm, well, I haven't been back to the UK for a couple of years, obviously, but when I do go back, sometimes I'm really surprised by how, how, how different I am. But is that because I've lived in, Jap in Japan for 20 years or is it because I'm just 20 years older than I was when I left, you know, um, 22 years old than I was when I left. So it's just growth and change anyway. Great. So kind of be aware of the type of person you're willing to become and make choices based on that. Yeah. And, and also that, you know, you might, you might mess up sometimes as you, you try these things and then you might realize, oh, hang on, that's the edge of my comfort zone on it. No, no, I can't, I can't, I can't keep doing this. This is feeling whatever icky, grubby, I don't know, whatever the feeling is that makes you like, no, I, I, I can't continue to show up in this way. So I need to think about like, is this, is this the organization? Is this the role? Is this the adaptation that I'm willing to make? Or 
can I find another way around to get to get to the outcome that you're looking for? There may be other adaptations that are possible for you. Are there any other tools that you found useful from that book, Global Dexterity, that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, they, they have similar to like in the culture map and Hofstede, you know, they do have some of the scales. So that's always useful. They do talk about kind of the comfort zone levels of how much how much you want to adapt. So it might be, for example, how comfortable you are with being indirect, let's say. And it may be that even being the slightest bit gray area is really troublesome for you because you prefer direct communication. But doing things like adding a maybe or a possibly or a perhaps is kind of stretching the comfort zone. But maybe the Japanese comfort zone with uh, you know indirect communication is so much wider. So you're probably not going to be able to get to so much so much uh, uh, ability to be indirect, but can you stretch a little bit more in order to not appear rude or in order to, um, yeah, make the other person feel more comfortable? So that's that's one thing. And another thing which was great in that book as well, as I reread it recently, was thinking about different levels of rehearsal and practice which is something which doesn't get talked about a lot. So often we'll do, you know, in a workshop, maybe people are going to do some kind of role play and discussion, but we don't really get feedback on it. So in the book, they talk about the idea of, yeah, there's a sort of role play kind of thing. Then there's more like a real play, like a dress rehearsal, but in a low stakes situation. So you can practice, you know, being more indirect or avoiding conflict, like over lunch with your colleagues. And then when it comes to the real, the, 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 the homban, like the actual event itself, you can think about, is there someone who can give me feedback and be like, you know, the theatre critic afterwards and say, you were not, still not indirect enough. You were still too direct and it was too confronting for the other person. And it would have been helpful if you had approached it in this way and have a trusted person in the room who can give you that feedback. You know, you have to tell them in advance that you want them to do it, but that can be really, really helpful to get to that level because we're trying to overcome often a competency challenge. So we have to build it in. And, and I'm not sure I've been that intentional with my cross-cultural uh, learnings, but I thought it was a great and a new approach, which I hadn't seen before. When it's your life, it's maybe a little bit hard to notice it. <laughs> yes, yes. That's for sure. So do you have any suggestions for people to kind of make sure that they're growing in those areas? Do you recommend that they just seek as much feedback as they can? Do you try to have them maybe reflect and journal on some experiences? That's a really good question. You know, I think around the, the growth point, I think people know, they feel that difference when things which would have triggered them no longer trigger. But I love what you've said. And, and when I think about how I work with my clients, especially in one-on-one -on -one coaching, doing an, uh, a review, doing a reflection and thinking about what did go well and, and how was that different? Where have I grown? And seeing those patterns is really valuable to actually celebrate um, this type of thing used to really annoy me and I'd always be really stressed out about it, but now I'm not oh, wow, something has changed. So let's sort of celebrate that success. Either it doesn't trigger me anymore or I have improved my competency in the area 
or I've just realized there are different, uh, different battles to fight. Um, and they've got to make, or maybe just even a, a different level of awareness that what's happening on the surface is actually, it's, it's, it's something deeper. It's something at the next level. And I remember when I very first came to Japan, so in the first couple of years, and I was working at the head office of the Eikaiwa, and there was a teacher who was really struggling with, you know, cross-cultural uh, conversations. And she just said to me, like, oh, you know, why can't they be more, more Western? Like, why did you come to Japan? I wanted to experience Japanese culture. This is it. And it was, I think that it's a good reminder to say, like, why, why did you come to Japan? What was it that you wanted to experience? And, and how is this experience, good or bad, helping you to learn the thing that you wanted to learn? Um, I think it's really useful just to remind yourself around that and to be, is it because it's Japan? Is it because it's me? Or is it because I haven't really thought about how this is helping me on this learning journey? Because often those big challenges, you're like, oh, this actually, I came to Japan to experience Japanese culture. Ah, and it's like, you know, so I've, you know, the things that a lot of people talk about annoys them is, um, you know, shogunai attitude, like it can't be helped. It's like, but shogunai attitude is what allows us to, you know, bounce back after big disasters. So it, everything has like a plus and a minus, like, oh, the bureaucracy, the red tape around everything. Like, that's why buses and trains run on time. So everything kind of gives and takes a little in, in my anyway. So I'm always looking for, although this is frustrating, what does sort of cult behavior, what is it bringing and why does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can help you not necessarily to be happy about the absolute pain that you're having in the bank at that time, but you, you also accept that this is what allows me to have other things at resident. So that, that's why I can, yeah, you know, travel safely or, or I can, or I can save my seat in Starbucks with my phone. Crazy, crazy. I don't, do people still do that? I haven't been to a Starbucks for so long. <laughs> so I would imagine maybe less this, now, maybe less now, but I would imagine in the countryside that's still yeah. common practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so I would like to talk about something that's a little bit more timely which is Mm. any changes that you may have noticed among your clients during this COVID situation now that we're moving into years instead of months yes yes so coming up to two years aren't we well obviously many of my clients are working remotely still so that's a huge difference And where that is showing up in the work that I do is clients are really crying out for connection, really wanting to find a way to have that kind of water cooler chat, to find those different ways. It's almost like many people got really transactional and forgot how to be like human with each other. And it's as simple as at the beginning of your team meeting, you know, have a little check-in, like deliberately have, we're always going to have five minutes where we talk non-business. 
we're going to see what's happening and then it's up to everyone as it as it is always to what do you want to share uh, what do you want to bring today but understanding those elements because we don't walk into the room and realize like oh gosh that lady's kind of like looks a bit pale or you know she seems a bit kind of stressed out today we can't read the air in the same way so we have to be a bit more direct in the communication about sharing and opening up for that and I feel that being intentional about that again is kind of the key word for me and and the need that it has has been has been the biggest the biggest change in addition as well I think a lot of people you know I do work around ikigai and there are a lot more people who are interested in thinking about why am I doing what I'm doing how am I spending my life and what what am I looking for and it's coming up as an engagement trend from a corporate perspective and then also as a kind of recalibration of of lifestyle from an individual perspective Um, and I think if you can find those where those two meet together then that's so it's a win-win-win all around right (laughs) people can be be more connected to their work and the people they work with yeah I can see how that would be a big positive for everyone involved yeah Apart from working from home, have there been any other shifts that you've noticed in any Hmm. of your clients? It's really interesting. I don't know if this is a shift in my clients or a shift in just something which is happening, but I I would say in 2020-21, and actually through most of my business, the years that I've been in business, I've done a lot of work with uh, groups. you know, so I, I used to do the kind of classic two to three days offsite, team building, setting the targets. And of course, that kind of business has shifted a lot. But in the last four to five months, coaching inquiries, like one on one coaching inquiries have really, really grown. So I think there's something about organizations really wanting to invest at an individual level and see the importance of having that third party coach. Many companies have great internal coaches and and support in that way, but having a third party coach who is a sounding board and a place to test out ideas and a little bit of ventilation, let's be frank, as well as um, moving people forward Um, Yeah, there just seems to be more of uh, an appetite and an interest, at least in my business anyway. (laughs) I don't know if I changed my marketing or something, but um, but I'm just getting a a lot more requests for for one-on-one coaching compared compared to previously. So that demand, have you seen it come more from people in Japanese companies or does it seem to still be more in Western companies? Most of my clients are Western companies, most are Gaishke, so I, I can't really speak to the, to the whole market on that. But with friends who I know who work as coaches um, more in you know, the Japanese, domestic or Japanese international market, I think coaching is, is really coming, coming up and getting more understanding and seen in the past, it was definitely like a remedial work uh, like the last thing to do before you fire someone and I, I I don't know if it's just the coaches that I work with and the type of clients that we um, we we deal with but it's definitely seen much more as a way to help people to achieve their potential and if there's something which is holding them back how can we polish that or how can we like reduce the impact of that so that they they can reach the potential um, I think that's that's a shift 
in uh, in the approach to coaching as well. But I don't know if that's COVID based or just the maturity of the the market is shifting as well. Yes. How people think about coaching. And I guess what matters is just that more people are getting the coaching they need, regardless of the reason for it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And you know, it's just it's so it's so valuable to to have a coach. You know, I've got several coaches I work with on different things. And having that mirror, having those questions, and also just having that space, which is you know, for one-on-one coaching, the space which is just for you to really get into what is holding you back, or to really, one thing I, I found personally very tough during like the COVID times, I was a big planner. And I love to have like everything outlined and like know what my year was going to look like and looking forward to things was a really, really big source of ikigai actually for me, like that feeling of excitement, the looking looking forward to something is going to happen, ikigai in the future. And it kind of all got taken away because the VUCA world that we live in, everything cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. And I, I sort of felt like, oh, who, who am I when I can't look forward to things? Um, I forgot what the beginning of my sentence was, but, um, you know, yes, the, the, the important thing was to, to be, uh, coaching can be a space to dream again. And I think that's really valuable as well to not be focused on, oh, what is it that I can't do or what is possible? Uh, but actually, what would it be like if everything went brilliantly? Right? We, we're not often allowed to have those kind of conversations. I think coaching is quite a magical space for that because it just gives you the freedom to play with it. Mm-hmm. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And speaking of Ikigai, I just wanted to get your perspective on what Ikigai is and maybe how it's been changing for you in recent years. Yes, definitely has changed a lot for me. I've been working on um, a book about Ikigai for a couple, a couple of years now. Not quite my life's work, but some days feels like it. Um but, you know, like many people, I came across Ikigai actually through the, the Western interpretation of the Venn diagram. And for a long time, like I thought, oh, this is Ikigai. And it was only after coming um, across the work from Nicholas Kemp from the Ikigai tribe. He has really interesting content. And I do encourage everyone to check out his podcast and his materials because he speaks with really interesting experts from a... Uh, more kind of psychological perspective, whereas my my podcast is focused more on people's stories of how they have done it. So it's a sort of more human experiential uh, feeling of Ikigai. Uh, so I think they're quite, quite nice balancing each other, right? Or like supporting each other in, in that way. But you know, the, what I love through the work that I've done and talking to all these people on the podcast and the research I've been doing for the book has been, it's so much more nuanced and so much more expansive than a Venn diagram that puts everything into one single point. So, you know, it's going to change based on the age and stage of your life. It's going to shift. You can have multiple Ikigais. You know, Ken Moggy talks about like, I have a hundred Ikigais, hundred moments of Ikigai. I talked to another researcher in Tokyo, Dr. Hasegawa, and he's like, well, I think 100 might be too many, but uh, yeah, definitely you need to have more than one. And I think that's a really different perspective than um, it's sort of seen in the West. And also, you know, the focus on it has to be only around career. Um, it doesn't need to have anything to do with how you spend your time and how you make your money. But I, And it doesn't even need to be 
really connected that much to you know what the world needs question feels quite scary for some people so I think it's it's nuanced I think it's expansive I think it's morphing and changing all the time and I believe that there are elements of like the ikigai feeling which can happen anytime during your day Um, you just have to be aware and pay attention to them yeah I hope that we can get the opportunity to to read your book soon (laughs) (laughs) me too (laughs) until then podcast please (laughs) yes podcasts are great you should definitely go check out both of those I will link them in the description of the episode for anyone who's curious but how do you advise people to kind of cultivate the awareness that a lot of these skills need because it can be so easy to just get stuck in autopilot and to not really think about the why behind things or especially the why behind why you do things and why you react to certain things the way that you do when you're so busy it can just be hard to actually take a moment and reflect Mm. on those sorts of things so do you have any advice for people in that area I think that's a really, really great question. And um, you've, you've tapped onto, I think, the key point, which is we think that we're too busy to have time for reflection. But without time for reflection, why are you doing the things that are making you busy? And reflection doesn't need to be, you know, a 30 minute meditation. It can be an end of the day you know, end of the day gratitude journal or an end of the day, like before you close your computer down or before you leave the office, like how did I make a difference today? Or whatever the resonating question is is for you. And uh, one of the questions I talk a lot with my clients in coaching because people find it so difficult to answer, including myself, is what do I want? You know, just before you go to a meeting, what do I want? And of course, there's what do I want as like the outcome of this meeting? But often we don't even ask that. We just go to the meeting because we've been invited to the meeting. (laughs) We just show up. We don't even think about why am I here? What do I want? But there's what do I want as the outcome? But there's what do I want to feel? What do I want the other people to feel? What do I want the experience to be like? Um, Just these little bits of intentionality can really help. One of the things I do in a lot of my workshops, because I'm a point of view expert is in the point of view methodology we always start with a pause so the pause is literally let's sit down for a couple of minutes and listen to some music with our eyes closed but that transition point especially for work people who are working from home we lost so many of our natural transitions that we never get the chance to just stop and reset what do I want or even how am I so I think that that's that's really useful tip And it doesn't need to be sitting down for three minutes to listen to a piece of music. It can be, you know, if you're, I I used to do when I came home, my kids would already be home. And just before I like put the key in the door, I would just take three breaths. I'd be like, okay, like now, now I'm in mother mode, (laughs) you know, like leave, leave my, my job behind. And now, now remember to transition into a different a different brain, a different way of showing up and leave, leave that behind. You can do these things to try to bring yourself to the situations as completely as possible, but sometimes they do overlap onto each other, especially <laughs> if your school closes or you're stuck working at home. 
life still happens, but there are things you can do to prepare yourself to be the best version of yourself in your context. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And asking that question, like, what do I want is a, is a really useful one. And then you can ask at the end of the day, did I get it? And if the answer is no, did I want it enough? You know, there's so many other questions you can, you can ask yourself as a follow-on to that. What do I want question? Right. And questions that are a lot more constructive than just getting hung up on, oh, there's so many things I didn't get done, or I wasn't as good at this as I wanted to. Asking the right questions is important because our brains like to default to less than helpful (laughs) patterns if we don't give them those questions. I mean, I think it's, uh, I might be wrong on this, but I've got a feeling there was some research that was done that shared that uh, humans tend to focus on the negative, right? As a, as a species, we look at like what, what didn't work. And that is helpful because it does allow for evolution, right? Can we get rid of like the weakest links of our parts of ourselves, but the celebration piece is so important especially when we come to like like thinking about ikigai like what makes you feel good what makes you feel alive and when do you feel iki iki right so noticing those moments rather than well don't like this i don't want that that's rubbish it's good to know what you don't like of course but what's the what's the switch on it when you can talk about like wow when i do this it feels amazing i want to do more of it Great. And what are some ways that you think people can cultivate more ikigai in their lives? Great question. Great question. Notice those moments, those things that you, time passes, or those people that you like to be around. Like, it's kind of, you know, almost the comedy. Does it bring you joy? I mean, she says, if it doesn't bring you joy, throw it out. But uh, maybe the other way is, if it sparks joy, bring it in and amplify it and do more and it doesn't need to that's why I I think that the Venn diagram sometimes is a bit dangerous because you're like well I'm not good at it but if you love it and it makes you feel amazing then do do it a bit more Um, and think about the people that you like to be with and and how you impact them um, or the learning that you you have and the things that you're looking forward to. There's so many different ways that you can bring more feelings of, of ikigai into your life. And it's kind of back to what we talked earlier on about authenticity. And just be honest with yourself, you know, like I really love Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter. I'm such a geek. And when I was able to actually like say that and, and talk about it more, just like so freeing. And then you find other people who, who love Harry Potter and are excited to, you know, go to that. I was talking to my family, like, oh, the Cursed Child's coming out in Japanese. I'm going to buy tickets as soon as it can. And he wants to come with me. And they were like, no, thanks. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to buy two tickets and I'll find someone else to go with. So, but I'll also, I'll go on my own. Um, but I feel, feel like if I can buy one ticket, because they'll be so hard to get, I should buy two. And I'll, I'll find someone who needs it and have that kind of shared, shared experience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just um, find the find the small thing. Um, one of the things which I do in a lot of workshops is a perfect morning visualization. And it's such a great one because it is so easy to think about tomorrow morning, what am I going to do to make this perfect morning happen? You probably can't make all of it, but I remember one workshop I did with a group of MBA students And one guy said, wow, I remember like my mother used to make these most amazing eggs. So after this class today, 
I'm going to go to the supermarket and I'm going to get the uh, things for how my mother made the eggs and I'm going to make them tomorrow. And just you could see how great he felt about looking forward to this, about the prospect of it. And then he sent me a photo of his eggs and it was amazing <laughs> to be like, oh, thank you for like sharing that it had that, that small impact. Um, so, and it, so it doesn't need to be huge things as well. So do you personally have an example that you can think of of a communication breakdown in Japan that you think may be due to cultural differences? Oh, where to start? Hmm, gosh. So like, so, so many situations from my experience in corporate, especially when we worked with a very international team. And a lot of it was about just non-explicit expectations and people trying to understand what the boss was wanting, but the boss not feeling that they needed to explain it because why would they? Because people should understand implicitly, mixed with kind of a language perspective. And, and my, you know, my takeaway from that a lot was, especially if you're in a you know, mixed culture team, is you have to kind of forget about kukiyomeru and you have to make like a new set of rules just for this space that when we're working together, we have to be really, really low context. And we have to answer, you know, the five W's, one H, who, what, why, when, where, and how. Um, and it's not because we, we have a lack of trust. It's not because we don't believe people can do these things. But otherwise, too many things get misunderstood and miscommunicated. So to support everyone's smooth ability to do their job and to be less stressed in this space, in this team, we're going to act in this way course when you're dealing with your other customers your other stakeholders those rules don't have to apply communicate as again it's that adaptability right so communicate in the way that's uh, that works in that context but in this team where we've got people from uh, five different countries working together there's just too many opportunities for us to mess up so uh, yeah let's be low context as low context as possible that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I believe that the culture map goes into a little bit more detail about that if you're curious. Um, I will link that up in the description of the episode as well. And yes. if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan for business and only had time to learn one thing from you about the country or its culture ahead of time, what do you think that should be? Maybe it's that question. Yeah, like what do you want? <laughs> what do you want out of this experience? And from that perspective, I think it's really being aware that, you know, you're coming with all of your baggage, all of your approaches, all of your norms, which you're not even aware of. And of course, your Japanese uh, counterparts are coming with all of those as well. And that neither is right or inherently better than the other. But I, I think one of the things is it's not until you leave your own culture, usually, that you learn anything about the culture that you're in. So be, be prepared to have things that you think are common sense no longer be common. Right. And I, I think that that is, is helpful for whether you're coming to Japan or, or sort of any, any country in the world that everything that you hold to be true might not be. And it's just one perspective that 
you know, you've been raised in, one reality that you've been raised in. And it's amazing when you realize like, wow, how much is flavoring my life, is flavoring my decisions. It's wild, actually. Yeah, you don't realize how much you had to learn until you left. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then, you you know, you, you, I think it's brilliant to, to come to, to live overseas for a period of time because you, I just how it makes you go wow yeah like nothing nothing I know is is set in stone and there are people who take their shoes off and there are people who have toilet slippers and there are people who don't and you know all of these different like how money is handed over just all these small points that you know period products are given in a paper bag I know there's a campaign against that now but just these small things that you you don't even realize you do or you don't do in your culture until you go somewhere else. And whatever, you know, if you've come to Japan to work, yeah, you're interacting presumably with some type of consumer. So everything you think you know about how consumers use your product, whether they're B2B or B2C, it might be nonsense. Uh, it just doesn't work like that in this culture. And I, I think that that happens a lot. So, and I, I just remember when... I went on my first business trip to India and I realized again, like how much I was bringing my expectations, you know, when I was on the phone to my Indian stakeholders and I was like, wow, when I got there, I was like, okay, this is totally, totally different. You know, I went to a client meeting and we turned up 45 minutes late, like in Japan, that's not your client anymore. In Bangalore, they were like, well, this client anyway. Um, it was like, yeah, Bangalore traffic, no problem. You know, just the, just so different. Um, so I think that those, those experiences to just be open to it is really important. Is there anything that we didn't really get to touch on that you were hoping to or anything you Ooh. wish that I had asked you about? One thing I do want to say, though, because this has come up because I run a online community called Make March Matter with a lot of solopreneurs and small small business owners, most of whom are in Japan, somewhere, somewhere overseas. We started it in March in 2020 as a COVID uh, support group for everyone who'd been cancelled. But one of the things, you know, if you are coming to Japan as a non-Japanese person, that's why you're here. Right. So again, it's about this adaptability, like that's your diversity is your point of difference, uh, your point of uniqueness and something to be celebrated. So I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, oh, you know, it's hard as a foreigner, as a woman. I'm like, well, you know, what, what I, would you like to change any of those things about yourself? You know, so you could naturalize as Japanese, you could um, transition like there are you, you could you could to a degree change these things about yourself. Do you want to No. OK, so this is your reality of who you are. So now you have to work with it. So adaptability wise, yeah, you might want to shift and, and make some minimum things, but also remember that what you bring is your overseas perspective, is someone who's not grown up with Arandasera and all these different ways of like, show like how you've been educated is so different, how you approach problems, how you think about authority, like those things are a gift to the system that you're coming to. Um, So don't lose that. Because that's what makes you unique in the in the market as well. Especially if you're feeling burnt out, and in you've just recently fallen out of the honeymoon period, 
into the less favorable next stages, we'll just put it as it can be easy to <laughs> yeah. see your differences as deficiencies. But yes. if you can see them as a potential added value, <laughs> that might yeah. be a better way of looking at it. Or if, or, you know, as I was talking to um, this entrepreneur, it's like, well, do you want to change those things? How much effort do you want to put into shifting them? You know, my Japanese isn't good enough. Okay. So that's a competency challenge, not an authenticity challenge. So you can change it. But am I Japanese enough? What? <laughs> like, it's, there's no, you, I don't know, you know, my, my kids are half and I, I don't know, like they still get that question and probably will. So it's, uh, I, I don't even know how you can answer that question as, a, as someone who says like no Japanese heritage, not brought up in Japan, coming as an adult, like, yeah, you, you won't be and you'll never be. So don't, don't sweat it. It's not why you're here. I think that's a great way to end. So thank you for being so generous with your time today. I'm glad that thank we could you. finally have this conversation and I'm really looking forward to sharing it. Thank you so much, Lydia. It was great to talk to you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. If you would like to learn more about Jennifer, her podcast, or her community, be sure to check out all of her links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out the link to the coffee page to help keep me well-caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interviews topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!